This is a Federal News Network podcast. Sustainment accounts for 70% of a military weapon's life cycle costs. The Defense Department says it can do a better job now of planning to control those costs and making sure products last longer in the field. DOD is expected to issue new procurement guidance on the matter. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni joins me with the details. Scott, tell us more about this guidance that is just out, how it's going to change program managers and the way they deal with sustainment. What the Defense Department's trying to do is really bake in uh, sustainment thought and sustainment planning right from the beginning of a life cycle of a, a procurement program. So right when they're starting the you know development of something, even the research of something, they want to think of how this is going to be working you know 20 years out, how it's going to be sustained 20 years out. This is something that they're already doing with cybersecurity. They're trying to bake in cybersecurity into programs right now. So uh, the sustainment uh, thought and sustainment modeling is a lot easier now. We have things, like I said, just modeling. There's digital engineering. There's different ways that they can sort of plan out and predict how sustainment is working. And You know, it's not like they weren't taking into account sustainment before, but they just have much more uh, technology and much more thought behind how they can possibly think about these things uh, 20 or so years out. So what they really want is things to be sustainable, reliable, and maintainable. So you can fix it in the field much later and, uh, you know, the, the parts will be there. 3D printing is available. There's all these new sorts of technologies that could help out with this. And of course, a lot changes depending on what kinds of conditions under which a platform is being used. If it's in combat versus just in training or exercises. So how do they look ahead to see how they can control these costs depending on what's going on? That's right. Well, they're not necessarily looking at it uh, from that point of view, but they're looking at it from the point of view of how it's going to be used in an environment that is in the future. And and in the future, they're thinking about climate change. Uh, DOD is seriously considering climate change as a an issue for its uh, strategy, for for its uh, sustainment, and for its military service members. There's been executive orders from the White House mandating that the Defense Department look at climate change and how it affects weapon systems and installations. And it's something that's close to DOD. One of the first directives that came out was from Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, saying how important climate change will be to the future of the military because of melting ice caps and rising sea levels, droughts, and all those sorts of things. But it also means lots of extreme weather that's going to take a toll on military weapon systems, uh, you know, sandstorms, rain, everything else you can think of. I always wondered why they kept the B-52s in the coldest part of the country all the time. (laughs) There's a good lesson in sustainment of something for 60, 70 years kept in almost perpetual freezing. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to really think about how weather is going to to affect things. And and one of the ways that the parallels that DOD is drawing for this is electric cars. We're seeing a lot of automobile companies now moving away from gas and moving to electric cars. That's going to help not only with just the renewable resource aspect of things, but also the Defense Department is more mobile in areas where they may not be able to get gasoline. And then also they can sustain that possibly longer if they can find the right technologies for that. All right. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Mossioni, and the Pentagon also released something called the Adaptive Acquisition Framework. That was last year, and we have some results. 
How's it going? Yeah, they're seeing some successes. And what the adaptive acquisition framework is, is it's a rethinking and remodeling of the 5000 series, which is really the main sort of Bible for how the Defense Department buys weapons. And they took that uh, main document and broke it into six different parts. So there's six, six different pathways for how the Defense Department can buy something. And it's just, you know, it's, it's really kind of common sense. You wouldn't buy software the same way you would buy a fighter jet. Uh, software needs to be changed much more often. You buy toilet paper every week. You don't buy a computer every week. And uh, so the Defense Department is, uh, you know, thinking about things in, in more of those sorts of uh, aspects. One of the thing that, things that they're doing and one of the tracks that they have is mid-tier acquisition. That's for uh, prototyping and for fast acquisition of innovative technologies, prototyping, those sorts of things. The mid-tier acquisition, they're hoping to expand to larger programs. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to make larger programs go faster, but they can make certain parts of larger programs go faster. So if there's uh, just a small wheel that you need for an F-35, well, maybe you can take that through mid-tier acquisition rather than putting it through that whole ACAT uh, type uh, large procurement cycle. So, um, you know, that's one way that they're changing things. Another is using the software track. So the software track is supposed to be one that's less than a year long. Uh, What they're trying to do is find a sweet spot where they're getting enough feedback from service members on what's going wrong and what's going right, but also uh, changing the software so that the security uh, is, is constantly changing so that they can keep threats out and they can keep things up to date for the most comprehensive and best software that they can use. In some way, that relates back to sustainment because you mentioned software updates and you mentioned new wheels that wear out on different platforms. That's all sustainment. And so with more adaptability in this framework, then maybe sustainment costs come down to tie it back. Right. That's the hope. I mean, especially with with software, if you have a large uh, cyber breach because your software is three years old instead of being three months old, well, that's going to cost a lot more uh, in a gaffe than it would have had you just bought some new software or patched it the way you should have. All right. With Lloyd Austin now in and some new people in some of the management positions at the Pentagon and the other trends in DOD contracting that are emerging. Yeah. Well, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen the Defense Department moving toward non-traditional contractors. They've been trying to harness that innovation out in Silicon Valley. And they created the Defense Innovation Unit under Ash Carter and the Obama administration. Out of that and out of some reforms from Congress, we saw the OTAs, other transaction authorities. It was a way to circumvent some of the FAR regulations and help the Defense Department get on contract faster with some companies they're not used to working with. Well, another thing that DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit, used was called a CSO, Commercial Solutions Opening. And we're seeing the Defense Department use that more often to the tune of billions of dollars and millions of dollars when it came to COVID. It's something that they kind of pushed out and used more during COVID. What this commercial solutions opening does is it allows companies to get on contract quickly while allowing them also to keep their IP and data rights, which is really what they're mostly concerned about. So it really is kind of a way that the Defense Department could get something off the shelf and then maybe tweak it a little bit if they need to, and then hopefully keep companies happy while also getting products out to the warfighter faster. All right. So somehow progress happens. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff 
to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration. And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it, it conjured up 
again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the 
cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high-level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.